the stuff happening within the mycelium network. There's stuff happening outside of the mycelium network. And then everything in between is also very interesting to look at. Welcome to Applied Mycology. I'm your host, Craig, here with your other host, Leaf. Hi there. And that was today's guest, Daniel Rays. Daniel is a good friend of ours who has taken a unique mycological journey from his background in hydrogeology and environmental consulting to teaching about the uses of fungi and their potential roles in environmental restoration and remediation. He began this endeavor with his organization Myco Alliance and told us about the importance of science education for familiarizing communities with the potential of mycology. When it comes to something as technical as biology, like communication is a huge aspect of it, right? We have to be able to communicate clearly because these are complex things that don't get talked about on a daily basis, right? We don't hear about pouring agar on petri dishes in the daily news. Later on, Daniel discussed his more recent research endeavors down in the Yucatan Peninsula, developing methods for testing the abilities of fungi to break down toxins. We talked about the importance of thoughtful design, enzymes, and bioprospecting to find good fungal candidates for use in microremediation. We just went out to an oil spill site in the Amazon jungle, and we saw this log just floating around, you know, kind of like dipping in and out of this oil contaminated pit. And on this log, we saw these bright red mushrooms. Before we start today's episode, we would like to talk about a little housekeeping with you, the listeners. This is the final episode of season one of the Applied Mycology podcast. We'll be taking a short break from publishing episodes for the upcoming months, and we'll be back with a new season later this summer. But keep an eye out for upcoming announcements about new bonus content and the future direction of this podcast and project. Whether this is your first time listening to the show, or you've been tuning in from the start, we want to thank you for supporting the show. You all are the reason we do this, and we're so grateful for you joining us on this journey of discovery into the fascinating and emerging realm of mycological knowledge and culture. Thanks for listening, and we'll keep you posted on updates as things develop. Now let's get into our discussion with Daniel Reyes here on Applied Mycology. Daniel, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show today. Really excited to have you on the Applied Mycology Podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. Uh, all three of us have some amount of personal history, so this will be a cordial discussion. Hopefully, we'll see how it goes. But we did have to start our discussion a little bit later today because your pipes froze and they burst, Daniel. So, I mean, are you up in Wisconsin or Maine or somewhere? I'm actually just in a part of Mexico where pipes are really old and fragile and any little bit of change causes them to burst. And it created a big mess in my front patio. Um, yeah, flooding my entire area right there. So yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> Had to hold back a little bit. Technical difficulties. But it turns out your plumber's also an electrician and he's going to help set up some wiring for your lab space in your apartment? Exactly. So... I'm in a situation where I'm lucky to have a lab downstairs in my home and with the green light to turn that lab into something that's way more interesting than my previous home labs. And so, yeah, I'm getting my plumber who happened to fix my broken pipe today 
to come back this weekend and set me up with some additional out again, some heavier equipment, some fridges, get a bigger flow hood, and you know, just getting all the equipment that I need to continue conducting my research here. Where exactly in Mexico are you? I'm actually in a city called Merida in the Yucatan Peninsula, close mm -hmm. to the Caribbean. And I've been here a year now, uh, close to a year now. And I've seen the different changes in temperature, different changes in humidity. And I've accepted the fact that growing mushrooms here is quite the task without any sort of controls. And not just growing mushrooms, but doing anything in the lab related to mycology is a difficult task because it can get extremely hot in the summer, upwards of 45 degrees Celsius. And plus the humidity, it starts to feel around 48, 49. Some people say it's going up to like 50 degrees Celsius, which is extremely Ooh. hot. In Fahrenheit, we're talking like 105 to 120 degrees. Is that, is that uh -huh. correct? Exactly, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> with, the, with the humidity, because it goes up to like 85, yeah, 85% humidity, it can feel really hot. 48 degrees Celsius, which is around 115 around there, Fahrenheit. Wow. What kind of projects are you working on right now? What's your uh, goals when you get this lab set up? Yeah, so the immediate goal for me to set up this lab is to continue my research with Dr. Flor Arcega, who runs the Geochemistry and Environmental Contamination Lab for the largest university in Latin America. They have a little campus here in the Yucatan Peninsula. And it is through her that I'm conducting this line of work, trying to answer these main questions, which are, is microremediation a suitable application for large scale environmental pollution? And if so, what are the industries that can benefit the most from some of these applied methods working with fungi and all? And then one of the more interesting questions that I'm trying to answer in the more immediate time scale is can we standardize the practice of microremediation at large as to be able to replicate these methods anywhere with any contaminants? And lastly, I'm interested in filling in the gaps, right? What are the gaps that need to be filled in so that we can take these steps forward out of the lab and into the field? Right, because for so long, decades now, we've known that fungi have this natural ability to degrade really tough recalcitrant compounds in nature, such as lignin and, and other things that we find. And, you know, slowly we've figured out the fungal species that can degrade lignin and other complex compounds like that in nature are very good at breaking down our agrochemicals, our hydrocarbons that are polluting our environments this day. But the question remains, how do we do it? How do we actually come up with a set of standard methods, a set of standard tests that we can run these different species through to come up with the best application for the field, right? And when we talk about contamination, environmental pollution, we're talking large scale stuff, right? We're talking about 25,000 gallons of crude oil spilled on the side of the road. How do we deal with that kind of problem with fungi, with mycelium, with mushrooms, right? And so those are the kinds of questions that Dr. Flor and I are trying to answer. And mainly because of the pandemic, you know, we've had to improvise and set up this kind of home lab, but I've also just really learned to appreciate the situation and, and be able to go downstairs and work in my lab on a daily basis and, 
Yeah, it's just slowly turning that crisis scenario that came about at the beginning of the pandemic into a more fruitful, more grateful perspective. And yeah, just being able to go into the lab whenever I want and set up the experiments that I want to run and kind of have more control over that aspect of my work has been a dream come true, to be honest. That's great to hear. What are some of the environmental inconsistencies that you've had to deal with and how are you thinking of ameliorating them? Yeah, so keep in mind, we're talking about a home lab that's initially started in my living room. It's still there, but it's no longer my living room, right? It's now fully transitioned into my lab. And like I said before, with the extreme temperatures that we have here during months at a time, I've had to really struggle keeping the mycelium running in a consistent way, right? Mycelium runs differently for different species, and they also run differently depending on the types of substrates that we use, inoculation rates. There's a whole number of variables that go into that, into predicting how mycelium is going to grow. Well, to throw in that additional parameter of extreme temperatures uh, just kind of makes it all really hard to keep up with. And so the first thing that I'm doing is just locking in the temperature controls. And one of the ways that I'm doing that is kind of a improvised solution, kind of making it up as I go. But I realized that instead of insulating my entire lab, my entire living room space and converting the entire thing into one insulated, isolated space, I'm buying some cheap coolers, big scale, industrial scale coolers that I can modify and have more control over that parameter, that, that temperature control is what I mean. Because having so that that's one way space would be kind of hard to regulate with that huge temperature variation in the summertime. Exactly, exactly. And just because of the excess in light consumption or energy consumption that I would have, I decided to come up with a different solution and buying these large coolers hopefully will make my life easier in terms of exposing the mycelium to more consistent, more constant temperatures. I, on the other hand, will have to suffer because I will be exposed to those temperatures. But, you know, that's the life of a scientist. That's the life of a, of a researcher. We got to do some sacrifices here and there. Yeah, just don't sweat into your Petri dishes. Noted. So, <laughs> Daniel, maybe could you elaborate more about your professional and educational background that led you into mycology? Absolutely. It's interesting, you know, I've pondered this for... Um, all last year and I just thought about how could I have possibly predicted getting to where I am based on where I started and there's just <laughs> no way there's no direct line so I'm, I'm extremely fortunate to be where I am doing the work that I'm doing but I was never into biology I was never really into mycology I, I had no idea what it was I come from a geology background I studied hydrogeology at the University of Texas at Austin Graduated with a bachelor's degree in 2012. During the time that I was a student there, I carried out an independent research study looking at the effects of urbanization on groundwater quality. That was really all that I was interested in was uh, groundwater quality, right? A lot of places such as Texas and here in the Yucatan rely entirely on groundwater as their main source of drinking water, industrial water. And so it's a very, very interesting topic. It's a very expansive field. It's been growing for a long time. It is still somewhat specialized, this field of hydrogeology, 
But nowadays, more and more institutions are offering those specialized programs. So anyways, I graduated from the University of Texas at Austin and decided to get a job in my line of work to get a career job as a hydrogeologist. And I got a gig with an environmental consulting firm there in Austin. The main job, you know, our, our main responsibility was keeping our client happy. That's what any consultant does, right? It just so happened that our clients were big oil and gas companies. And the primary work that I was doing was acting as a sort of emergency responder, uh, environmental emergency responder for oil spills. And so at the time, I, I didn't think about it too much. I thought about it as like an extreme type of experience that I didn't want to have anything to do with, right? Showing up on spill sites within 24 hours of the accident occurring, delineating the extent of the spill, coming up with really cool maps using GIS so that we can show the client the extent of the spill, how sensitive the areas were based on geology, based on nearby bodies of water, based on ecological factors. And at the time, again, I just thought, this isn't where I want to be working, right? This is a disaster zone. These are extreme events. But slowly, I realized that I was put there to see the disaster, to see the extent of our human activities and how, how impactful it is that we do these things on a daily basis. And so I worked there for a while and then slowly like started asking myself, well, what comes next, right? We, we show up at a spill site, we delineate the extent of the spill site, we come up with a really nice strategy to come in, intervene, come up with a, a nice solution for getting rid of this problem for the client. But at the end of the day, what I was seeing at the end of the project was that the place where the spill site occurred was still a hot mess. <laughs> you know, it was still a disaster zone. We just got rid of the problem or to the best that we could and transported the problem somewhere else and made it someone else's problem. You know, we were there to serve the client. And this is a new, right? This is the nature of working as a consultant. You satisfy the needs of your client. And so we were doing that and we were really good at it. It's just that something within me just wasn't satisfied with it. You know, I was like, okay, well, we did a good job. The client's happy. We get paid. The lab results came back and it said that we have now met certain standards, certain limits, and we can use that to get the EPA off our back, right? Or any sort of environmental agency, depending on the state that we were working in. So all of that was fine and great, but deep inside of me, I was like, this cannot be it. Sure, my job is like, it's all going well there, but I don't feel like we're doing a good enough job for the planet. Like what I'm seeing is that this is still a disaster zone. And so slowly I started asking questions, what could come next? What could we do in addition to what we're already doing, which is like industrial processes to make the site come back alive, right? So that we can leave it in the conditions that can then be set up to grow food or, you know, to rewild it or to remediate it, right? You know, that these are all things that started brewing in my head. And I'm sure that many of the listeners here, if they're interested in fungi, they're interested in mycology, mushroom cultivation, I'm sure everybody's heard of Paul Stamets by now. And it just so happened that Ooh. I came home one day. I came home one day after three weeks at a spill site in Oklahoma in the middle of the summer. And someone sent me a video of Paul Stamets talking about mushrooms and how great they are and you know their ability to save the planet and 
I did feel like it was far-fetched. It was a little bit, you know, blown up or blown out of proportion, but there was a small piece in there, in that video, that really changed everything for me. Obviously, it was the piece that talked about oil spill remediation or oil spill cleanups. And the main takeaway from that for me was that fungi can do this naturally. You know, this is something that they've been able to do for a long time. And it's not because we've adjusted them or we've engineered them to do this. They're just naturally capable of breaking down some really toxic stuff. And so that right there was the green light for me to dive deep into it. And so for the next six months after that video, I pretty much taught myself how to cultivate fungi starting from a petri dish that I bought. Shout out to Asheville Fungi if y'all are still out there. They sent me yeah, their they, Chris they Parker. Sent me, yeah, they he sent me my first Pleurotus pulmonarius, uh, the Phoenix oyster. Uh, he awesome. sent me a plate of that, and that was the first thing that I did. I just started expanding it. Obviously, I had mycelium running at that time. This uh, book published by Paul Stamets. I had. I was gonna um, say when you said mycelium running, was that a noun or a verb? <laughs> so I had mycelium running established. <laughs> the procedure of mycelium running. I had Trat's book, I had Peter's book, I started getting in touch with some people just out of curiosity, like where could this take me? And I found a paper talking about glyphosate and atrazine and fungi being able to degrade it. And so the first set of experiments that I did was pouring atrazine on petri plates and just seeing how fungi respond to it. And you know, surprise, surprise, here I am five years later doing something very similar. You know, I'm working with agrochemicals, I'm working with hydrocarbons, and I'm observing how fungi, different species of fungi, react to being exposed to these contaminants. And now I'm at a point where I can run more sophisticated tests. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about this later on. And not necessarily quantifying the degree of tolerance or degradation, but even just from an observational point of view, like I feel that I have this deeper connection with fungi. I know what they're doing. I know what they need. I know what they're telling me based on their growth. And when I first reached out to Paul Stamets and his team, and I asked him about like microfiltration, for example, I was like, well, how do we know that different species growing on different substrates over different periods of time are going to act in the same way when water flows through them and they're like well you just kind of have to know you know you just have to like you get familiar with your strains you kind of like observe how the mycelium's running on grain then it'll tell you when it's fully colonized there's no real way to to measure anything you just gotta have you just gotta have a feel for it and at the time that in itself frustrated me so much because i was like can anybody just tell me something <laughs> like can anybody just gave me something straightforward, like a formula or a roadmap or a standardized method of doing this. And there was just nowhere to be found, man. Like there was just no standardization of those kinds of things. But now I get it, you know, now that I work with fungi and I've been working with the same strains for a while, I'm like, oh no, I know because, because I know that strain or because I've worked with it for so long, I know what it's going to do or I know how it's going to respond. And, you know, it's like full circle, man. Like you just... <laughs> The, the things yeah. that frustrated me at first are the things that probably frustrate others when I teach them about the work that I do. They're just like, but how? How do you know? It's like, oh, you just know. It's <laughs> funny when you're saying full circle there because in some ways it reminds me of 
don't know what what inspired me and Craig to make this show was that like you're saying there's not clear delineated answers to most of these questions when it comes to working with fungi and then you kind of like you read the books that are out there and they only can tell you so much so part of what we're trying to do is get people like you and various other guests to be like you've worked with fungi what was it like and usually there is a factor of you kind of got to understand the organism and, and feel it out and that seems to be an inherent quality of it which yeah makes you know traditional quantifying science in a flask you know it, it's useful but like you're saying when you're like i'm looking at the mycelium growing i'm not necessarily quantifying it i'm more observing it because even if you measured like the mycelium grows this fast on a petri dish it degrades this chemical this much if you're talking about actually taking that fungus and then putting it into contaminated soil do those measurements even really mean very much at that point? Because it's such a different environment. And that is definitely the nature of biology. <laughs> and mm -hmm. certainly given the fact that fungi are neglected and the fact we understand them. You know, we thought they were plants up until, I believe, 1969. Mm -hmm. So the factor is we're only just beginning to kind of scratch the pellicle. What's going on and what these interactions are and realizing how much effect they have. And yeah, very much in the aspect of that, unless you're enrolled in a degree program of studying them and usually for an extension of uh, animal or plant pathology or even just an extension of like taxonomy, you're not really getting that exposure. And so very much from the DIY aspect where a lot of these routes have come from, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Paul Stamen's book, Mycelium Running and Even Growing Gourmet and Medicinal Mushrooms, and even Trad Cotter's book, Organic Mushroom Farming and Micromediation, and, uh, and even Peter McCoy's book, Radical Mycology, which all stems from a more formal collection of standard operating procedures where a lot of this knowledge was online somewhere. It was DIY. And I can definitely relate when I was getting into it. Much of when I was diving into it was try to understand these details more and to experiment in that kind of creates a strange attractor where like you're the person that has the knowledge and people want to hear from you and then you kind of find yourself teaching and trying to share it what was your experience like founding Myco Alliance was it similar to that factor of being that person who held the knowledge or was it kind of more of just a desire to apply these principles and teach these principles towards micromediation or was it something kind of a culmination maybe in additional as well Excellent. Yeah, that's a really good question. And to be honest, it stems from all of that. Yes, um, there was a certain lack of understanding just in general, right, about mycology in my immediate surroundings, my peers, professors that I had in college that when I brought up the topic of applied mycology, micromediation, they were just like, well, I think there's a biology department in the university. You can go talk to someone that studies fungi, you know, as parasites or something. But what are you talking about, right? And so there was this certain need that I perceived. But then also, like, there's something about teaching that just reinforces the level of understanding that you yourself have, right? And so I was lucky to have that experience at the university doing that independent research study that I mentioned briefly, looking at the effects of urbanization on groundwater quality, and was lucky enough to have a program within my department, within the Jackson School of Geosciences, that once a week we would get together and we would pitch our thesis, right? We would practice talking about our work. We would bounce ideas off of each other in a very formal way because most of the students that came out of that program went 
either they stayed in academia and then went off to do their PhD and, and all of that, or went straight into industry. And when it comes to something as technical as geology, hydrogeology, and obviously the whole field of biology, like communication is a huge aspect of it, right? We have to be able to communicate clearly because these are complex things that don't get talked about on a daily basis, right? We don't hear about pouring agar on petri dishes uh, in the daily news. Like we don't, we don't hear about these things. And so when we try to communicate these ideas to people and the intricacies of each step and each procedure and the methodologies and the philosophy and the art and the science of all of it, it really becomes this, this situation where we have to be great researchers, we have to be great educators, and obviously we have to be great at communicating. And so for me, starting Michael Alliance back in 2015, it was A, the need for me to continue diving into the field of mycology because I had become so fascinated by it. B, there was a general lack of understanding and knowledge in my immediate surroundings. So I wanted to share, like you said, Craig, it's just this, this need that you have to share with others. And then C, I realized that the more I talked about it, the more comfortable I would feel bringing up these ideas to the everyday person, even like children, right? They would come to my classes or they would come to my events. And at the same time, be able to talk to industry professionals and then talking about the same exact thing, but just doing it at different levels. And so really the five years that I ran Michael Alliance, I feel like I treat it as a very in-depth master's program or just general postgraduate program that taught me so much about business, about networking, about research, education, consulting, like all of these different things that I had already like touched on either at university or within my career job as a hydrogeologist, just bringing it all together. And the cherry on top was I get to work with fungi. Like I get to work with mushrooms in the way that I want to, right? Like I'm not starting a farm and now I need to sell a certain number of mushrooms, which means that I need to produce a certain amount of mushrooms. And that just like takes up my entire life, which many of you, you know, that are listening, like if you have a mushroom business, you know how hard that is. And I was just lucky to have a different interest in fungi that was more research based, that was more educational based. And so with Michael Alliance, at the end of the day, what it was for me was this unique experience that I don't think I could have gone anywhere else with a graduate program at any institution. Maybe now things are different, right? People are catching up to the Main Street vibe, right? People are catching up to the things that are happening in mycology and, and the people are seeing the potential of it. But even like five years ago, six years ago when I started, none of that was really happening, right? Some people had heard about Paul Stamets, but that's it, right? They just had this idea that mushrooms were going to save the world, but they didn't really know how. That for me was Michael Alliance, and now it's changing. I feel like Michael Alliance has grown up a little bit. It seriously grew up in 2019, I should say, when we started the Central Texas Mycological Society, and that took on more of the educational community outreach events out of the hands of Michael Alliance. And that was great because now I can focus Michael Alliance on some other things that I'm happy to talk to you all about. But that's what it was, right? It's an ongoing project that served me and hopefully served the hundreds of people that came to events and workshops throughout the years as a primer, you know, to build a foundation to do this kind of work because 
as all of y'all listening know, it's not easy. <laughs> Some things are easy, but to do it right, it's not easy at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. You know, one of the recurring themes on this show, we talk about what the fungi are actually doing quite a bit, but we also talk about the metaphor that the fungi can provide as being this kind of connective tissue of nature, the, the mycelial networks, or like it, they patch all these things together, and then when we apply that metaphorically to human existence, there seems to be often a correlation of getting involved with mycology and fungi, and then all of a sudden you're like finding yourself connected to all these other things because it often ends up being somewhat interdisciplinary. And I know on that note of the you know metaphorical connective tissue, Myco Alliance, that's how I first discovered you. I was in school and I was getting interested in mycoremediation as well. I read Mycelium Running. I had been reading academic research papers on, you know, fungi and contaminant degradation. And when I'd look it up on the internet, yeah, it was very niche back then. This is probably in 2014, 2015. And I'd see a few organizations and yours would pop up when I would look this up. So I was like, I need to get in touch with this guy. He's out there doing it. And to whatever extent the Michael Alliance was in terms of spreading the knowledge, trying to set up research. And so I perceive it from an outsider perspective also that, you know, you probably through running that endeavor brought a lot of people to you. You almost like became somewhat of a node for people who are curious about this type of thing. So it's interesting. I ended up coming down there to Austin and visiting mm -hmm. and, you know, seeing what you had going on and helped co-teach some workshops and whatnot yeah but it also felt like an important step on my journey of connecting with someone else who is like really trying to go in deep on this and then through connecting with you i ended up connecting with various other people in this scene and you know and some of those people you know led to other opportunities i had later so like it, it's interesting because in some level i was like oh michael alliance are doing all this i'm going to show up and they're going to be like you know cleaning up whatever urban toxic spills down there but it was more of an educational thing because you know we're, we're trying to build this from the ground up yeah. and so ultimately i view that as being super important because going back to like part of why we're doing this show is to like you know increase the literacy spread this knowledge and you were doing that very early on i think your organization was probably one of the you know, back in whenever that was, the mid-2010s, that was like, you're bringing people together, teaching them about this, and not just like, here's how to grow mushrooms in your backyard, but like, where could this go? What could the applications be? And that was pretty exciting. And so maybe just to paint a more complete picture of this, Michael Lyons was operating at a specific site in the city of Austin, and do you want to talk a little more about that? Absolutely, man. And, and thanks for bringing that up. I feel extremely grateful to have had, oh my God, at least a few dozen people come out and dedicate their like weekends and, and a few week days to the project, not just the, the planning and the organizing, but the physical manifestation, right? Putting a, a site together, a research station, <laughs> uh, putting up the walls, right? Putting up a, a rainwater collection system, putting up the greenhouse so that we can do these experiments. And like you said, at the time that you came down, there weren't really like ongoing projects that we could say, look, this is how fungi are breaking down hydrocarbons. And this is a clear example of that. But it was more so like, setting up the foundation, setting up the skills and bringing in the people to say, look, this is the reality of the situation out there. And this is how far we've taken it with fungi and these methods. 
from here on out, it's really up to us, it's really up to everybody that was there at the time to apply it, to experiment, to create, to explore. And so I would say that maybe six months into my co-alliance, this is back in 2015, around the summertime of 2015, I came across a really old organization, the oldest nonprofit in Texas called Ecology Action. And I had heard about them because they had a recycling center downtown in downtown Austin. But they also had this other project um, on the east side in a neighborhood called Montopolis, where they were in the process of converting an old landfill into an educational center. And they call it also an ecological haven, right? And they wanted to turn this space into a nature preserve. That space also happens to be the place where the Rhizome Collective, if anybody out there listening is aware of the Rhizome Collective and the work that they did in Austin and are now doing up in New York, um, I think it's called the Radix Center. Yeah, and you all know Albany. that this is, mm-hmm. this is the Albany, yeah, Albany, New York. This is that same space. And so I had a meeting with Ecology Action and I pitched to them the idea of setting up a project, right? I really just wanted to do an installation for myself to see how well fungi can do these things, right? Microremediation, can they filter out contaminants from contaminated water? Can they restore polluted soils? Can they accumulate heavy metals and remove them from that environment, right? So these are like the same questions that I'm asking today, but at the time, I really just wanted to do a one-off project, a one-time installation, kind of like test the water before, test it after, and then just come up with some nice results. But after spending some time at this site, this uh, 10 acre property that, like I said, was a landfill that got cleaned up and then capped, turning it into a brownfield. I had a bigger vision once I was there. I talked to Ecology Action. I, I came up with this idea of establishing a center there. We did some projects. They really liked what I was doing. They trusted me with the work that I was doing. And it, it seems like almost overnight, I went from doing a one-off project into establishing a little school like that's really what it felt like at the time was like we're starting a little school out here at a former landfill site and so like almost overnight i brought in volunteers we started putting up the walls of this place and like i said just starting fixing up this thousand square foot space that was given to us and then got to work and then from that moment on it really just took off and it was beautiful it was wonderful and i honestly don't think that it could have played out in any other way except the way that it did. So yeah, that context really painted a good picture for me and for the people that attended the workshops because yeah, like we're talking about mushrooms, we're talking about fungi. There's a big aspect of doing work with fungi that's sterile, right? We're, we're talking about lab work, we're talking about putting gloves on, spraying alcohol in our hands every five seconds, making sure everything's clean. But then there's this other aspect of fungi that has nothing to do with that, right? We want the opposite of that. We want it to be free. We want it to interact with others. We want it to form these symbiotic, beneficial relationships with other microorganisms so that they can actually do the work that they want to do. And then looking at my specific line of work with microremediation, like that site also offered those elements, which is like, we can talk about pollution, we can talk about landfills, we can talk about brownfields, you know, what is the legacy of EPA brownfield program? What are some of these other topics that I'm interested in, which is like hydrology, groundwater, just general environmental pollution. And so that site itself like offered all of that and more, right? And so 
I would say that Michael Lyons really took up that spot. And to this day, there's a presence there. Michael Lyons is no longer, there's no workshops there. There's no events there. Those events are being held through the Central Texas Mycological Society or the individual group that makes up the research station, the Mycological Research Station within this space called Circle Acres Nature Preserve. And so, yeah, it's just, it's great looking at it five years down the line and seeing all the work that we've done and how it's still going, but just in a completely different, or slightly different, I should say, slightly different direction. So yeah. Once you bury that many spent oyster mushroom spawn blocks on a property, it will never be the same again. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's nice. So yeah, it's cool you were doing all that and Maybe let's end our period of reminiscing on that project now and get more into the current research, which, you know, some of this is related to stuff you've been doing before, but we, uh, you know, we're talking a little bit about what you're working on now and talking about working with different strains of fungi and trying to address mm -hmm. these knowledge gaps. And uh, I guess I'm curious personally, because I did go down to Merida once with you and see a little bit about what's going on there, but what species of fungi are you working with right now down there? The fungi that I work with primarily down here are polypores, primarily in the Ganoderma genus, Ganoderma planatum, Ganoderma cecile. Those are the two main ones that I found growing wild that I've cloned and put into my culture bank, my culture library, and been working with those. There's also a ton of Lentinus species I've got a couple of Lentinus cretinus and Lentinus tigrinus. I know I'm not saying any of these the way that they should, but... but All right, I, th I think that one's Lentinus crinitis, right? Lentinus crinitis. That one's really tough um, in, in terms of like the mycelium structure. It's really tough. It's a really fast grower, very aggressive. And I find it mostly in disturbed areas in the wild. So anywhere you have like paths or trails, right? official or unofficial anywhere where you see like disturbed vegetation you start seeing these lentinus species come out some of the other ones are tremedes i don't know if they changed the name formally now but it was called pignoporus cinnabarinus or pignoporus sanguineus now it's tremedes sanguineus uh, but it's that bright red polypore that most of us have seen again walking mm -hmm. on trails that one might be sanguineous maybe sanguineous. I, not, not that i know specifically but it's like you know sanguine like like blood and they're really mm -hmm. red and you said lentinus tigrinus too right yeah lentinus tigrinus i've also brought a few down here with me and i've been able to successfully fruit them out in outdoor conditions so that i can then clone them and hopefully doing that will give me a more adapted more acclimated strain of that species and so i've done that with some Ganoderma cecile strains and i've done that with the lentinus degrinus strain that i brought down shout out to the mycelium emporium i remember getting a liquid culture syringe from them a while back and then just been keeping that going i've got a really nice tremedes versicolor the turkey tail that i brought from mexico city i cloned that back in 2017 and yeah, so mostly focusing on wood decomposers and then even more specifically trying to focus in on the white rot fungi, those that are able to break down lignin on their way to break down their food source, which is cellulose and hemicellulose. 
And so the real like hard decomposers, that's what I'm after. And, and most of them are polypores, which is like my favorite type of mushrooms, you know, just being able to find these big shelves going on the size of the trees. Like that's definitely my favorite part of working with these mushrooms. Plus they make really strong medicine, right? Some of the most powerful mushrooms out there in terms of medicinal uses and medicinal benefits are the polypores. And so I kind of have best of both worlds, I should say. <laughs> I want to back it up to Lentinus to Grinus again for a moment yeah. there. Tiger you, saga. I've been doing some research with a Lentinus to Grinus strain from, uh, uh -huh. from Trad and Mushroom Mountain that apparently the original specimen was fruiting off of a piece of driftwood in the Gulf Coast in Florida and cloned it and used that strain because it grows super fast We've done some research with it, and it just—it's got super aggressive, vigorous mycelium. So, I just wanted to give a shout out to the tiger saw gill there. You mentioned Trad and the work that he's done with Lentinus, looking at things like tensile strength, right? Mm -hmm. I believe in his own research, Lentinus tigrinus came out on top. You know, even beating out like hard, woody species like Reishi, right? The Gonoderma species. Yeah, and we so ran some experiments where we had bags of just some soil mixed with sawdust because we're doing for more remediation experiments and we had yeah lentinus to grinus ganoderma curtisii the local golden reishi variety and yeah. pleurotus ostriatus the oyster fungus oyster was weak and flimsy and it didn't really grow very well but the lentinus to grinus it was like within a few days it's just like turned into a solid block and we were also, we were testing its ability to degrade atrazine, and it was actually mm -hmm. so far pretty effective at that. But, you know, there's going to be more research on that. I don't want to get ahead of myself with talking about the results there. But the Lentinus genus does seem to be quite potent from what I've seen. So, Daniel, what types of fungi, what qualities about a fungi or species would make a good remediation? And maybe talk a little more about the importance of bioprospecting. That's a really good question, and I think Leaf touched on it a little bit. These observations that Leaf talked about, right? How fast they grow, how hard they get almost immediately. I mean, these are all things that we can keep track of in the lab, but in terms of going out into a wild place or going out into nature and looking for species that may be suitable for remediation, that's a little bit harder. I definitely look at things like the type of substrate that they're growing on. I'm not an arborist, nor do I have extensive knowledge of different tree species, but I am surrounded by people that know what they're talking about, right, in terms of uh, botany of, of the region. And so I look at the substrate that they're growing on. What kind of tree species? Is it hardwood? Is it softwood? Right. I look at the location. Where in what kind of vegetation are they located? Uh, what kind of climate and, and temperature conditions do they tolerate? What kind of climatological conditions do they prefer? And then another thing that I, that I look at, and this has been kind of my thing for a few years now, is looking at mushrooms that grow in pretty harsh conditions and how exposed are they to ambient pollutants or direct pollutants, right? I've got a story that I often tell in my workshops and classes when I talk about cloning mushroom species from the wild, where we were in Ecuador back in 2014 when I was learning about this stuff. And you know we were just tired one day after trying to set up a lab, running some experiments, trying to grow some oyster mushrooms unsuccessfully. And we just went out to an oil spill site in the Amazon jungle. And we saw this 
log just floating around, you know, kind of like dipping in and out of this oil contaminated pit. And on this log, we saw these bright red mushrooms growing from it. And it was this one that, that we talked about earlier, the Pignoporus sanguineus or the Tremedius sanguineus. Bright red mushroom just like calling out our names, just being like, hey, pick me. <laughs> and that was like the light for me. It was just like, wow, there are mushrooms that grow in these environments. Wouldn't they be better at remediating or breaking down or even just tolerating these pollutants if they're already here? And so that's kind of where I had that spark of like, oh, we can clone mushrooms. We can go out to these spill sites. We can go to the middle of Mexico City and collect turkey tails, you know, knowing that it's been exposed to so much already. And, you know, just from my own experience, those types of finds, those types of mushrooms have been the ones that perform better during the trials in the lab, you know, again, trying to compare and contrast the different species. Now, I would say those are the main ones, you know, substrate, location, and exposure to ambient pollutants. So I would say that those are the, the main factors to consider when uh, looking at a potential strain or potential species for uh, conducting microremediation trials. And that's definitely a significant factor, understanding fungi, and they're making themselves present. They're there. The hyphofilaments are growing through a number of substrates and more so they pronounce themselves in environments you wouldn't normally understand or accept to find them, especially with that note of, you know, bright red mushrooms fruiting off a log that's half submerged in an oil pit, which is, you know, pretty <laughs> as, as, as vocal as you can get when it comes to the potential of remediation. Daniel, what project brought you down to the Ecuadorian uh, rainforest? What brought me down there was the culmination of experiences in my career job when i was working as a consultant setting up my lab for those six months teaching myself basic mycology sterile work learning from the best right i, I got in touch with trad cotter i got in touch with peter mccoy paul stamitz and his team helped me out a little bit trying to run some experiments and at the end of those six months i decided to just take a huge leap of faith and i went up to my boss at my job and just told her straight up, like, I want to do this from now on. I want to study mushrooms. I want to see how far I can go with this. I found an organization down in Ecuador that are pushing for this idea to do research in one of the most polluted sites on the planet. It was as easy as that and as hard as that, right? It's kind of like I had the initiative and I just went full on for it. As easy as that. So I quit my job. Qu <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> as easy as that. You know, just got to quit your job. For you anybody out there listening. life to mushrooms. <laughs> if, if anybody knows who Gary Linkoff is, this was his message. Gary. Just, what do you have to worry about? Just mushrooms will take care of you. Just quit your job. On a long enough time scale, he is correct. Um, <laughs> we we do not necessarily uh, endorse that I message. We do not necessarily endorse or condone dropping it, I know, I know. But, but, um, but just... If you can, if all things are going well for you, consider it, but then be smart about it. I did the smart thing. I took the necessary steps. I spent months doing research with a safe job that, you know, was providing me so much experience and exposure to things that served to get me to where I am now. And then I lined myself up with an organization that was focused on this work. I went down there. I got the most out of that experience and then I came back and did a full-on analysis of my realistic options and my realistic opportunities with my newly gained skills. And then from there um, came Myco Alliance. And so 
this idea that Gary Linkoff, RIP Gary Linkoff, one of the best to have done it ever, one of the messages that he communicated to me, yeah, it was a little bit radical. It was like, yeah, quit your job and dedicate yourself to mushrooms. But it was more than that, right? On a practical sense, I don't encourage anybody to do it either. But it was this sense of like losing that fear, not just about the world and your life and your career, but the fear of fungi, which so many of us just grew up having, right? We grew up in a mycophobic culture. So yeah, just the words that Gary Linkoff shared with me was more so touching on losing that fear, losing that like mystery about mushrooms that like, well, I don't want to touch it because it might be bad. It might poison me. I don't know its name, so I'm not going to get close to it. I'm not going to take it home because I don't know anything about it. Gary would just be like, just call it whatever you want and take it home and just touch it and smell it and play with it and then take pictures of it and play with the fungi, right? And so that's really like my message from Gary was the losing the fear of fungi and the whole adventure of learning about fungi. But yeah, seriously, for those of you listening that are you know contemplating quitting your job so you can start a mushroom farm, like it's a lot. So just be wise. You know, take all the necessary steps and precautions because it's a long journey and really get yourself lined up to do this well so that other things in your life don't falter because of this, right? Or don't fall out of place because of this pursuit, which is a beautiful pursuit. The world needs more mycologists. The world needs more people interested in these kinds of applications, but we can't afford to lose good people throughout the journey. And, and I've seen so many people fall under the trap of, DIY, entrepreneurship, you know, mushrooms are going to save the planet, like that kind of philosophy will definitely hurt you if you don't take it into consideration. So that's my overall message. I did it because I was in a position to do it. I could afford to do it. I had the experience. I had the objective. I had the background. I had the training and I lined myself up with an organization that was doing it. And I had the ambition to come back and do something about it. And I just stand still and wait for the next thing to arrive. I made something out of that. And so I don't want to say unless you do what I did, then don't do it. Definitely go out and try it yourself. But just be smart about it. We need more people doing this kind of work. But we need people doing it the right way. And the right way is different for everybody. But you know deep inside what is right and what is not so right <laughs> <laughs> about this journey into mushrooms. And definitely within the past uh, five years, the community has quite grown and very much the project that we're trying to do here and document the community that is there. Because definitely over the past year and a half, two years, they've definitely blown up in popular culture, fungi in general. So people are learning more about fungi through culinary medicinal kind of the legal framework that's very much changing over in the therapeutic benefits they have and kind of being introduced them saying whoa like there's this large gap of knowledge and oftentimes they don't really know where to start you know one notion is that fungi are ubiquitous in our world and they play a huge number of roles but it's important we talk about them and most people's experience with fungi either ends at kind of the kitchen cutting board at the music festival. So the question is kind of where do we go from here? And having people like yourself to speak about their experience and share the kind of nuances that developed when they maybe didn't really know who was there, only maybe there were no nodes. But I feel like in the future, the community is growing. So in a sense, although there has been DIY, it's potentially also do it together. That's the future aspect as well. I agree. And not just the everyday person, but cross-disciplinary, right? 
I come from a geological background and I rely on people that know more about biology, more about mycology, more about engineering than I ever will, right? So it really becomes this need to create bridges. And I think that you guys with this program or with this project that you guys are developing is so essential, not just to people like me that you know are looking to connect with those experts or upcoming experts in their fields, but just to the, the whole scientific community at large. And I find it so inspiring to know that podcasting has become so easy to do, so easy to come by, I should say, because making a podcast is not easy. I know you guys know this very well, but just the access that we have to this information, the access that we have to experts and expert opinions and publications, right? You can get on Google Scholar and find publications for any topic that you want. You may not be able to go too far into it without tapping into the subscription journals, right? That only the universities kind of like keep their research in, but you can get pretty far if you just start Googling papers, right? On different topics that you have. And so I think that especially right now, like you said, Craig, that fungi and mushroom culture in general is becoming so mainstream. It's become so accessible for people. It's important for us to, sometimes I feel like it's it's important for us to be kind of like the party poopers, right? We have to come out of the, <laughs> you know, we have to come out and be like, hey guys, this is all great, but throwing mycelium bricks into <laughs> floating rivers of water that are polluted with, you know, heavy metals, it's just not going to work. So like, let's really think about how we're going to do it. Definitely. The, <laughs> the enthusiasm is great, but it's also understanding that, you know, we're still learning. We're still at the, just the beginning of this understanding, but also like helping people understanding. And this is very much what's so expiring about working with fungi is that you're often rewarded by experimenting. And that's, I think, a huge aspect of peeling because there's so many interdisciplinary opportunities working with fungi whether it's food or materials or soil health or, you know, my background kind of with fungi was interested in environmental remediation and went into micromediation and really dove into fungi because I had that gap in my knowledge. It almost kind of became mycocentric in a sense. <laughs> but definitely as I progressed, I kind of definitely got more into soil and realizing, you know, they are this kind of connective tissue of the multiple species and, you know, very much being the architects of the soil and I look at how I've progressed and gone along my journey and, you know, and see there's opportunities to collaborate and, you know, acknowledging that, you know, there definitely is that kind of that maybe a bit of a honeymoon period when like you first read and like, wow, and like you're blown out of, yeah. you know, context and proportion, but then you start to like learn more and say, oh, this is really complicated, but also brand new. There's many horizons to be moved onto and to be reached and to be explored and even breakthroughs that kind of maybe rekindle that, uh, that aha, that initial enthusiasm and awe that was generated when you kind of first get into it. That's definitely something, you know, as I've gotten into my focus more on soil recently, that I'm finding myself with more of those kind of epiphanies and kind of unlocks. And mm -hmm. the one thing I would say is definitely people that have experience of fungi, potentially being maybe the party poopers in some aspects, but you have an intuition that you can definitely share with people that maybe you have this mycological or this uh, fungal or mycelium lens, which you can look at different aspects to kind of help people, you know, one considerably save time. I think that's one thing. And definitely in <laughs> micromediation, um, everyone's kind of reinventing the wheel. Like we always talked about, Oh, let's have a central form. We can share standard operating procedures and this and that. And it, it's hard. So there is hope in the future as the, the next generation people join in that we can kind of show them the way and, 
help them understand there are networks existing that, you know, you're not starting from scratch. There's a good community that's out there. But how do you just connect these distal nodes, not just into a decentralized fashion, but also distributed? You know, party poopers are often sober. And, you know, I think over time we're trying to provide a more sober viewpoint on a lot of this stuff. There's like the initial excitement of, wow, potential fungi. And then it's like, wow, it's really complicated. And there's a lot of details that I... And I think, you know, creating these networks, having these conversations is so important because I know I had a background more in ecology and in environmental chemistry. And I know from talking to Craig a lot, you know, I've, I knew that like environmental DNA, environmental genomics and things like that was important because people had dropped that little bird in my ear from time to time when I was going to school. But I was like, yeah, but uh, it's not for me. Mm. But from spending more and more time talking to you, Craig, it's like, and because, you know, we're talking about it in like a, conversational way it's not like i'm trying to read some instruction manual about why this is important and like i've definitely gotten to the point where i'm like yes this this is a topic that i want to dive really deep into because now i see why it's an important step forward and i know something from talking to you daniel that i started to look into more was you were real big talking about like assessing the enzymes that the fungi are producing because that's how they're degrading these contaminants or even just the wood is, you know, through these enzymes they produce that can break this stuff down. And I know you're the first person to really introduce me to the whole idea of, like, enzyme assays with fungal cultures. And I was like, oh, that's cool. It's not super complex methods, but you can gain a lot out of that. And are, are you still doing, like, any enzyme assays with your current work? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that that is uh, the main focus of the work Obviously, these bigger questions that I proposed earlier, which is like, where does micromediation fall in terms of like scaling up, right? What kind of industries serve to benefit from these applications? Like within those big pictures, there's all these little questions that need to be answered before we get there, right? And, you know, that's the same thing for everything, right? Like you start with a big question and then you break it down into actionable steps or, you know, big goal, big objective, and then there's all these little action items. And so... Really, when we think about it, it goes back to the original thing that I said, which is like fungi can do this work naturally. They can degrade wood, right? They can degrade all these toxic pollutants. And now the question is, how do they do it? Well, they do this externally, right? They literally sweat out this magical cocktail, this enzymatic cocktail is what I like to call it, that is produced specifically to break down the thing that they're being exposed to. And so... That in itself is probably the most fascinating aspect of fungi in mycology for me. And that's always been the thing, right? Going back to what I said about Paul Stamets and the first time I watched that video, it was that. That was the spark for me. It was like, oh, wow, they've been able to do this for millions of years. Like, this isn't new. Fungi can do this. And so it really comes down to that is like, how can we get fungi, you know, to do this thing that they do naturally, but adjust it and kind of modify it in a way that is not so intrusive but how do we modify it naturally to serve the needs of our problems right of our environmental problems and so what it comes down to is that fungi will produce different enzymes depending on what they're being exposed to for the most part the synthesis and secretion of these fungal enzymes are strictly influenced by nutrient levels right? How much nutrition is available to them will determine what kind of enzymes, how much of that enzyme they will produce. Culture conditions, 
you know, we were talking about the different strains earlier, you know, what they're growing on in the wild, where they're growing, what kind of temperatures can they tolerate. All these things are going to play a factor into it. Developmental stage, like how far along the journey of the mycelium or the fungal life cycle is it? Because that will also determine how good it is at producing this enzymatic cocktail, right? And one of the ways to clarify that is if we have mycelium, right? If we have a, a strain of reishi growing on PDA, right? Potato dextrose agar, and it's been growing on PDA time and time again, right? We've got 10 generations of just reishi growing on PDA. More than likely, that particular strain is not developing the full set of enzymes that we wanted to compared to a strain that we've slowly fed it pieces of sawdust, right, into the agar mix so it can be exposed to something more complex and definitely not as capable of producing these enzymes as those strains that we've exposed to the real contaminants, right, that we want to break down. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like that 10 generation PDA strain is like the person who's been sitting on their couch eating pizza for years and stopped going to the gym. <laughs> However, um, exactly, yeah, if that person <laughs> eventually got off that couch, maybe changed their diet and started exercising, you know, their muscles haven't forgotten to perform. And like, this is something I've talked about and thought mm -hmm. about is that, you know, fungi, they have like an enzymatic vocabulary, you know, like anything, if you are out of shape or out of practice, it'll be rusty about it, but stimulation from your environment and even some interesting aspects as well, you know, in addition to being stimulated by your environment or the diet of substrates or potential contaminants they're encountering, also interactions with other microbes, other species of fungi, but also bacteria, some kind of interesting stuff that these bacterial fungal interactions where certain strains of bacteria can actually stimulate the growth of certain types of fungi because they'll kind of be like you know like imagine like a pilot fish on the side of a whale you know they kind of have like this mm. kind of symbiosis but also as well in some interactions we know a number of species of bacteria can very much degrade uh, petroleum hydrocarbons or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons mm -hmm. and even to we understand now that there is actual exchanging horizontal gene transfer between these bacteria and fungi. So we talk about in a sense of in the soil, there is a constant exchange and modification genetic information, you know, vertically the, between the same species of fungi, you know, between it's that it's progeny of its enzymatic vocabulary in the past, but also horizontally between different bacteria and fungi and bacteria and bacteria and fungi and fungi. So it's pretty amazing that, you know, once you think you're looking at just this one aspect a whole nother dimensionality expands upon it. So that's kind of, you know, when I was like getting into soil, I was like, okay, <laughs> this is kind of the another <laughs> aha moment for sure. Oh, Lordy. Yeah. And so Daniel, you've been talking about these amazing, potentially even magical enzyme cocktails, the fungi produced to degrade stuff. But how do you like in the lab actually assess like how many of these enzymes the fungi are producing or if they're doing these decomposition behaviors? That's a really good question, Leif, and it kind of touches on what you mentioned earlier, which was that, sure, we can compare two different strains, you know, side by side on petri plates, and we can test out the time it takes to degrade things like atrazine, right? But how does that translate into the field? And that's a really tough question, and it's not a straightforward answer because, kind of like what Craig said also, it's like, it's not just the nutrition, it's not just the growing environment but it's also this interaction with other microorganisms with other bacteria for example that are going to play a very important role in what happens out in the field 
So there's all these different parameters, but at the end of the day, we still have to have something to use to compare the different fungal strains and to compare the different methods, for example. And so enzyme assays are easy strategies to compare different strains and obviously different species in helping us determine which one is better suited for one application versus another. So what does this actually look like in the lab? It can range from something visual that we can actually see on a Petri plate. These are assays like using Wyocol. You know, Wyocol is commonly used to cause a color change on the Petri plate. And you can measure the radius of this circle that's changing color as the mycelium's growing and secreting these enzymes reacting with the food source, producing these free oxygen radicals and changing the color of Wyocol. And you can visually see and measure that and compare the different strains to it. So that's one of the easiest ones you can do is just visually observe the growth of this circle on a Petri plate. Now, it goes from that, which is kind of simple. If you know how to pour Petri dishes, if you know how to prepare your own agar recipes, then, then this is something that you can do very easily. It goes from that to something very complex where you actually isolate individual enzymes from this cocktail and measure the activity of that enzyme. And enzymes, well, they're hard to work with because they're catalysts, right? These are biological catalysts and they play a role in life and all organisms, right? These catalysts are responsible for accelerating specific metabolic reactions or just in general chemical reactions. And so they're kind of like this agent of chaos and change, right? And so it's hard to like measure them as a standalone thing, but what we can do is measure their activity, right? So we can look at the chemical reaction and we can look at the byproduct of that chemical reaction and measure how much free oxygen radicals are being produced, for example, as a proxy to tell us how active that enzyme is. And so when we kind of look at the full scope of what the fungus is doing by reacting to the specific contaminants, taking that information in, relaying that throughout the entire network, formulating this specific cocktail and then secreting it. And then from there, it's not just like the formula will now dissolve the contaminants, but it will actually trigger a series of chemical reactions that will then do the work. And so there's the stuff happening within the mycelium network. There's stuff happening outside of the mycelium network. And then everything in between is also very interesting to look at. And so the next line of complexity when it comes to enzyme assays is taking a, a sample, like a liquid sample of this enzyme broth. And, and many of you have seen it, right? Like if you have a, a mushroom block, right? Mycelium growing on sawdust, they typically sell them to you as a kit. Or if you have a mushroom farm, you grow tons of these. And you always see this little pool of exudates inside of the bag coming out of the mycelium brick. You can take that sample mix it with some chemicals and watch how those chemical reactions occur and track it over time. One of the things that you can do is use a colorimeter so you can track the changes in light absorbance over time, or you can get more sophisticated and use a spectrophotometer to do the same thing. That in itself will give you a level of activity of that enzyme. And again, what we're measuring is not how much of that enzyme is present, but how much of a chemical reaction is occurring, giving us this byproduct that we're measuring and in that way, measuring how active that enzyme was. And so there's this kind of like backwards way of approaching enzymes because directly measuring them 
especially at a DIY level or even at a home lab level, is pretty difficult, right? It's a very sophisticated method of extraction and isolating and purifying and then maintaining those enzymes so that they don't denature and fall out of place. From what I've read, all these white rot fungi lignin degrading enzymes, if the pH goes above four and a half, they're done. So it has to be acidic for them to actually exist. pH is important, temperature is important, and some of them need co-substrates to perform their essential role, which is to catalyze these chemical reactions. And so it's an ongoing kind of experiment that I feel I'm conducting. I'm constantly testing out different strains for their enzyme activity. But at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is not come up with some universal standard for different strains because I can have a turkey tail that grows really well here, but then I take it up to New York and give it to Craig and it's gonna adapt to that environment and it's gonna change, right? There's so many changes that happen within one, two, even three generations. You have strains that are completely different, you know, to some degree. And so I'm not looking for something universal about that particular strain, but really what I'm focusing on is the methodologies and how can we standardize these methods so that we can compare these observations, right? And at the end of the day, because we have a long ways to go when it comes to studying fungi, you know, there's millions of species out there that we haven't even looked at, we haven't even identified, we haven't even seen at all, right? It really becomes essential to come up with tools and methods and procedures to speed up the process of identifying fungal strains or fungal species that are better suited for different types of applications. And so that's really my kind of objective here is that I may not be able to come up with the ultimate solution to all pollution on the planet through my work, but at the very least, I want to create a foundation or to continue to create this foundation for those that are gonna come after me and have a better starting point than what I had, right? And so for me, it's like, okay, let's just start from scratch. What do we need to do? We need to come up with standard methods to compare and contrast. Okay, the first thing I started doing was measuring growth rates. So just getting mycelium, transferring it over to new Petri dishes, how do we measure that growth and how do we compare that to another strain on another agar recipe and have those numbers make sense and have those comparisons make sense, not just to me internally, but for the community at large. And so that was like step one, it's just how do we measure growth rates and how do we compare growth activities between different strains? And then from there, it jumped to enzymes. And then from there, it jumped to degradation. And how well does a lentinus degrinus degrade atrazine versus pleurotis? Well, Back in the day when I started, all I did was look at the Petri dish and say, okay, well, the Pleurotus pulmonarius, the Phoenix oyster, grew really well, and the Pleurotus digimor, the pink oyster, didn't really grow that well. But that was it. Like, that's, that's as much of an observation I could have, right? It's like, well, it kind of colonized this much or that much, but there wasn't really a way to measure it. And now with this little system that I have using a grid, I can put numbers to it and quantify the percentage of the area in the petri dish that was colonized within a certain time frame. So that gives me colonization rates. So that's just on the basic agar recipe. Now, if we add in atrazine, if we add in some other inducers, right? If we start changing nutrient levels, if we start changing the pH because of what Leaf brought up, you know, enzymes are sensitive to changes in pH. 
So how do we actually measure that? And so that's one way to do it, right? It's just observational stuff. From there on, it, it gets more complicated, like I said before, to try to actually quantify it. But that's my intention with all this work. Go ahead. Let me get this straight. You're saying that you don't necessarily expect to discover the solution to these problems, but you're trying to create methodology and information to allow future researchers to do it more effectively? Are you trying to be like a real scientist or something? Well, listen, I hit a brick wall not too long ago. <laughs> and I discovered that it's just not possible. It's just not possible to, to solve it all. And, and mushrooms are not going to do it alone. I'll tell you that. So if fungi can't do it alone, what hope do I have? So really, what it comes down to is I'm lowering the bar and saying, look, this is as much as I can provide. That is what science is. That's the thing with science. Oftentimes there's a misconception that, you know, that we prove things in science when, you know, logicians and mathematicians actually prove things. But in science, we're actually just reducing uncertainty. The biggest thing is that you can document something well enough that it can be reproduced and reproduced and the uncertainty reduced even further to the point that you can pretty much have an intuition about something that you can predict that something will happen. And that's something that we do forget. And even too, the reality is this also does feedback from the community aspect. Yes, there is only so much you can do as one person, but documenting, recording, and sharing this allows people to take from this prior experience, understand, and you know that's the beauty of sharing this knowledge around fungi is that we're not reinventing the wheel every time we want to do it. That's something I definitely similar experienced as well. And touching on a lot of the themes that we discussed about the interactions of fungal metabolism with these enzymes, some of the really fascinating stuff I've been getting into, given the fact that, you know, I started getting into fungi around the same time I was getting into molecular biology, beyond just identifying fungi using their DNA, like through barcodes, which is looking at one region that is pretty stable. It's in a good place to phone home and look at in a genome and a fungal genome, specifically talking about fungi but molecular ecology, where even now we can look at the genomics, we can extract environmental DNA, and we can sequence or barcode the genomes of organisms living in there. Then even further, we can look at, of those genomes, what genes are they expressing? What are they transcribing? What RNA are they producing to make enzymes and proteins? You can do the transcriptomics. Then even further, you can do the proteomics. You can look at the proteins of which enzymes, enzymes are proteins and enzymes have that catalytic function. You can do the proteomics. And even further from those metabolic interactions, you can do the metabolomics. You can actually look at what's going on, correlation to those regions from genome to transcript to protein to metabolite. And then what's even crazier is now some of the cutting edge stuff is that you can basically simulate what's happening in a microbial ecosystem based upon certain factors. This is mostly looked into for climate change, but even too, you could model for how something would react if there was a certain contaminant or you know some kind of carbon source. Maybe it's a bit more anthropogenic in nature rather than naturally occurring, but this is a crazy factor of where the science is going. And the huge potential where you know people getting into mycology are looking into all the different directions that uh, fungi feed into the microbiology of our world, that fungi are ubiquitous and present, and they are kind of the thread that binds the microbial world together, at least on land, terrestrially. Aquatic fungi, Absolutely. that's a whole different <laughs> story indeed. Yeah, marine fungi, that's definitely something I've come across that I'm just fascinated by. 
There's a ton of literature out there as well, but it, it's hard to wrap your mind around marine fungi, you know, living in the depths of the ocean and doing all these other metabolic functions. Like, it starts to get crazy. Yeah, like I heard that they've identified fungal networks and the ocean's floor, but the mm. fungi really just provide a structural scaffolding that I believe it's either bacteria or protozoa, like basically just use as their structure to move along and then decompose things. So then when like a whale carcass ends up on the ocean floor after all the other things eat it, eventually there's some fungus in the ocean floor eating it and you got free floating fungi. We need to find a guest who's a aquatic fungi expert is what I'm yes. what I'm sensing from this. Uh, yes. But this conversation is endless and we want to be mindful of your time since we could probably keep going on on you know various topics for for much longer but we appreciate you sharing your time and your knowledge with us Daniel and it's always great to catch up with you. Likewise Daniel, thanks for uh, coming on. So for people who want to like follow your work or maybe support what you're doing, how would they do that? Thank you guys. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And like you said, it's endless. Really, we could talk about this for hours. And I, I know you guys can. <laughs> I get tired easily. <laughs> but um, this is something that, that is fascinating to me. And I don't mean the science itself, but just this conversation, the communication about it, the coming together, looking at the issues that we have that are real, right, in our, on our planet, in our environment, in our society, in our immediate environments as well, right? But also, like, I'm fascinated by this whole conversation, and I know that we can go on for hours and hours. And I know that many people out there listening, wanting to get into the field of micromediation, are looking for these hot spots, they're looking for these communities, they're looking for resources. And at this point, you can find me at Myco Alliance, that's the handle that I use. And soon, uh, through Instagram, you'll be able to find links to uh, websites and in other projects that I'm working on. But in the meantime, um, if you have any questions, any comments, or if you're looking to come down to the Yucatan Peninsula and maybe do a workshop or an extended stay, find me at Michael Alliance all together on Instagram. Awesome, and I will say from observing your Instagram, I saw some pictures with you and, and Jose your hairs are getting pretty long. You all look like a bunch of hippies or something down there these days. <laughs> what you were saying earlier today about like, oh, that's why I don't grow my hair long anymore. I'm like, I got to do the opposite, man. <laughs> I can't look all clean cut. <laughs> no, they won't, they won't trust you down there. No, like, who the f*** is this guy? <laughs> Say hi to Jose for me. Oh, I absolutely will, man. I know he misses you. We got to go back and explore the jungles. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, well, Daniel, thanks for uh, coming on. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you, guys. Thanks to Daniel for that insightful discussion. You can keep up with his work by following Myco Alliance on Instagram at Myco Alliance. And if you enjoy the show, subscribe to it on your favorite podcast platform, leave a review, and follow us on social media at Applied Mycology, one word. Thanks for helping make this a great opening season of the show. And while we'll be taking a short break, we look forward to you joining us for season two. Also, stay tuned for new bonus content and other announcements from Applied Mycology. Thanks for listening.